everyone. I'm Jenny Graham, Editorials Editor at the Tulsa World. Bobby Set, Editorial Writer. How's everybody doing? Had a good week. So this video is also available on podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. So if you're running and you want to be entertained, obviously the Tulsa World Opinion section is where you want to go. So get your blood Clearly. pumping. Clearly. It's election season. The session started. It's a good way to exercise. So, um, you know what? We'll just dive in with talking about our columns this weekend. We, I think we have a pretty good package. Uh, mm -hmm. I decided, and mine's almost like a, a, an annual one where I look at the demographics of our legislature, uh, of different boards, you know, does, and I've always been concerned of, does our government look like us? And no is the answer. What's weird, when we're looking at the legislature, our lawmakers are, you know, the, the houses have become more white, 91% white in the state. And that's compared to like 74% white overall. So um, my, my theory on this is that we have to be purposeful about it. And it starts with appointments, particularly at the local level. And looking at uh, G.T. Bynum and, I, and David Holt in Oklahoma City have been made this a priority. And they mm -hmm. track the demographics of who they're appointing. And we're getting closer to that at the city levels. Because I think we have to build these leadership pipelines that yeah. you have to reach out to people you don't know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there is an argument, which I found interesting, even though I think they're wrong, which is demographics don't matter, that there's this sort of mm. narrative that's, that's developing, um, that we just should have good people, that it, we shouldn't have to worry about how many Hispanic people, women, the LGBTQ is represented. Um, I push back on that pretty hard, but I mean, what, what do you think of this idea? I mean, do you think having a mirror... Is that important? I think it is. I mean, I can understand why people are saying, hey, let's just find the best people to do this job, whatever that is, sitting on a, a commission or a committee or, or in an actual elected seat. So I get that. But the problem is, is that, well, who determines who's the best qualified? And if it's the same people who are running the show, and they look all like each other. They're just going to keep picking each other. I mean, that's the, you're, we live in these little silos, like you've pointed out. You know, you kind of go with what you know. And if what you know is basically the same community of people, well, that's what, that's what it's going to look like. I mean, I don't see how... <clears throat> I don't see how ignoring the the viewpoints of other people helps. <laughs> I mean, right. really? And, you know, when you think about innovation, it comes from different thinking. Because if you just go yeah. to your own networks, um, mm -hmm. then you're just going to end up with the same. And I, and I just, our, our nation is becoming more multicultural, more yes. multiracial. So and is our city. We, yeah, and if we're going to um, prepare for a, a better future, we're going to have to recognize that and be and and be more purposeful about who we put in leadership. And I just, you know, I just feel like we have to be and we have to push our leaders to really think of that. Whether it's coming from a judicial nominating committee that puts forth a list, or it's 
you know, the mayor who goes out and, and finds people. But, um, I, and I do think there's something to be said about people will get involved if they see people who look like them involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that goes with everything. Think of sports. You know, you know, once, you know, Serena and Venus Williams started playing tennis, all of a sudden, girls of color started playing tennis. You know, yeah. once you see people who are in different roles um, leading, then I think you, and then you get more, and I think with public life, that's so important. So that's why to me, diversity is important. So I yeah. kind of take a look at that uh, this weekend, but I, I have to say, Bob, you've got a great column coming up. And, and just in a nutshell, it's talking about these school board races and other, and we'll see it probably with city council too, these nonpartisan mm -hmm. races that are all of a sudden, or maybe not all of a sudden, they're partisan. And these groups yeah. that are pushing candidates. So what, what kind of prompted that spark in your brain that made you want to delve more into that? Well, we were talking about some of the local school board races here in the Tulsa area, and we noticed um, on one of the candidates, uh, she had put on her campaign's Facebook page uh, something about getting an endorsement from the county Republican Party, which I thought was, wow, this is a nonpartisan race, but, you know, here we go. So I just started doing a, a dive into, into her and several other candidates. And the next thing I know, it finds like, you know, the County Republican Party actually endorsed three people in three different districts. And you were starting to see sort of this, it would almost look like a coordinated effort between the, the County Party and some other organizations that have popped up, you know, parents, there's like a parent's choice and a parent's rights type or a parent's voice type of thing and, and all this stuff. They're like these grassroots yes. parent groups that have just sort of, sort of sprung up in the last year or two. Yeah, so I started digging into that and I started seeing some real common themes with a lot of them. They don't like mask mandates. Uh, they're pretty iffy on vaccines. Um, they're speaking out real strongly about critical race theory. Which is not taught things, in schools. Which is not taught in schools. But, you know... CRT and you know the term woke and everything like that. None of those mean the same things as they used to I, mean. I have anymore. noticed that they, they, they co the the code is CRT or like programs, so yeah. that way there's an out because a recognition that's not taught. So so anyway, continue so, some of the other. So things. I started looking into that kind of stuff, and it what did seem very coordinated, and the candidates are all kind of in lockstep with each other. Not saying that their concerns aren't their concerns, but it just seemed very interesting that it matches up with what we're seeing in school board races across the country. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a distinct partisan tone to the campaigns now that did not used to exist before. You know, nonpartisan races have become more partisan over the years, but it's, I don't think it's ever been quite this overt. Mm -hmm. And it's getting to the point where it's something that I thought when I was scrolling through this, well, someone had put up a, uh, it looked like a screenshot of a document from the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association giving school board members grades. I was like, well, that is crazy. I, I mean, I know this organization. Like is, yeah, why, why is a gun lobby concerned about uh, schools? Schools or, you know, 
unless you so want. I, to. Yeah. And, you know, so I go to their website and they've got like a questionnaire that they gave to candidates of all stripes from the governor's office all the way down to these local offices and everything in between. A 50 question questionnaire. And it went, as you'd expect from OK2A, talked about some gun issues, but it also talked about CRT and it talked about masks and it talked about abortion and, you know, a whole bunch of other things uh, that didn't deal with firearms, didn't deal with schools, but definitely had a, a strong, I guess, hold or roots, strong roots in what you would consider social conservatism as it exists today. And I put in a quote in this uh, column from Steve Bannon, and he said in his podcast back in May that uh, these are this is kind of a paraphrase, but he said the way to save America is through the school boards. So seeing what's happening here, which has been happening going back to November's elections in school boards all over the place. It's interesting just to see how it's manifested itself here locally. Um, that's not saying that the Democrats have not been involved. Uh, they are starting they to... Also, didn't they back some candidates too? They did. They sent okay. out a newsletter that we're showing the candidates that they said they preferred for these specific school board races. But you had to do a little digging to find that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think they're a little late in the game. And honestly, they also don't I'm, have these other other groups that are sort of bolstering no. that either. I mean, I it, no. when you have some of these other you know, self-proclaimed grassroots groups saying the same thing, it does yeah. sort of, you know, and there are some, and, and municipal, I mean, our mayor, G.T. Bynum, started a PAC to, yep. to influence. Now, he's saying it's nonpartisan, but, you know, it's, 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 We'll we'll reserve judgment on that one, I guess. Yeah, but we'll see. Certainly, pump. And the other thing is, it seems to maybe pump more money into these races too. That when you're starting yeah. to, to attract that kind of um, attention, it, you, I mean, I say it used to be school board members would have like a thousand dollar budget, put up some signs. Yeah, now basically, just, yeah. you're graduating from say being involved in your PTA, saying, "Oh, I think I can do a little bit more." You're going to the school board. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that are seeing school boards and city councils and things like that as training grounds, kind of like a farm system to eventually start promoting people in the legislative roles and maybe grow from there. So, you know, it was, then you don't have to really go back too far to see a good example of that. I think like Sarah Palin was like a, a city council member or a mayor or something like that of Wasilla in Alaska. And she leveraged that into becoming governor. And the next thing you know, she's a candidate for vice president. Yeah, but you don't see that with school boards too much. I mean, in all the times I've, I've covered Tulsa Public Schools, Judy Eason McIntyre is about it, I can think yeah. of as far as, I mean, it seems like. So far. Do, yeah, school boards, like, so if far. it turns out, there's no pay and you're meeting all the time. I mean, yeah. if you think that that's going to be, if, if you're already crunched for time. School board is not not what you want to do, but mm. um, but but I will tell school board they got it right. Bixby, Bixby had they had they had a process of book banning. Whether you know you can challenge a book, so a parent challenged two books. Mm -hmm. Thirteen reasons why. And what was the other one? Oh gosh, it was. It was another teen one. They had yeah. to do with something, um, and this parent was upset because there was 
there were dirty words in it and some sex yeah or something it was a rape scene and yeah. and she wanted it off the the high school shelves so they had a hearing and i think that the, the district upheld it and said no we're going to keep it on the shelves but there is a process that already in place for parents who don't want their kids to check out materials they can block mm -hmm. their kids from checking out materials so that true and i and their argument is since that's in place you know, you can block your child from that, but you can't really block another child from that. Because another parent, I mean, I, I'm a parent, I'm pretty permissive because I think literature is good to explore things like that. Like, mm -hmm. I would rather my kids read about these horrible things than, you know, so, and understand that in the context of it. So, uh, what did you think? I mean, you, you followed that Bixby yeah. hearing. I think this was a good example of why we should leave these things more to local control. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's like you said, they got process. If you see some material that you don't like, you can file uh, you can file something with the school district saying, hey, I think we need to pull this book. So the book goes through review committee that's made up of teachers and administrators and librarians. And uh, I think there's I think there's parents in there. I'd have to check my check myself on that one. And they go through it and they, you know, they kind of make a decision on whether or not to recommend pulling it or keeping it. And then it goes to the school board and that gives you an opportunity for the public to be there as they're talking about this and then make a decision. So there was a lot of the things that they were saying in there. It's like, you know, if we just start dumping stuff at will, then you know you were just making decisions for other people just based on your preference and i thought that was an interesting pushback mm -hmm. because that's exactly the type of thing that, that we're looking at in the state legislature right now where they're basically saying no we're going to flip that script and going to make it to where if a parent objects and you don't do something about it we're going to fine you 10 grand a day mm -hmm. so what i would say is Look at how Bixby did this, how deliberate the process was. Look at the discussions that were had in that and then kind of appreciate that they made a decision based on their individual values within the school system, uh, within the, the people that live in that community, and they move forward with it while also acknowledging that, like you said, there's a process that if you don't want your kid reading 13 Reasons Why, you can say so, and they're going to expand that to where parents can look at the stuff online. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you got to go to a library or go to the admin office when they get their system when they get their system up and going. You'll be able to check it out online, right? And 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 you know, I would also suggest parents look at uh, what their kids are because that that's actually a, a Netflix series or something, I believe. So yes, it is. Um, you know, all this is focused on schools, but there there is a wider culture. I I would. Most definitely. That, that parents are concerned with. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that, that was one thing that went right. And, you know, another thing that went right. And we we did an editorial that the board brought, that the board discussed, which was giving a pat on the back to our state auditor and inspector. Sydney yes. Bird. And, and maybe we don't do that enough with our, our, our state and local officials to say, hey, doing a good job. She's mm -hmm. just, uh, she has shown to have... Um, a very independent uh, 
approach to her job that she, you know, has done, she did the epic audit that uncovered mm -hmm. what, you know, 145 million at least in, in questionable spending. She did the, the recent health department audit that mm -hmm. showed, you know, $5 million of PPE wasn't, you know, received and that mm -hmm. the, the head commissioner's salary went from what, 160,000 a year to 335,000 sort of yeah. in, in like 18 months. And we've had like three or four different health commissioners. So she, and then the recent one that it was an interesting one was this little town Tryon mm -hmm. over by Stillwater. Mm -hmm. They had a police chief that was just spending the town. So it was something like $800,000 of just going to casino and pulling it out of casinos and spending it on hunting and fishing equipment and just basically spending it on himself. And she uncovered that and recommended charges to the DA and and so and so she deserves credit for being the watchdog on that. The one of the, the trying one that that caught my attention was the idea that these small towns in Oklahoma. It really shows that when there's not a watchdog, and a lot of these places used to have little town papers or radio stations or people that yep. would just go and watch. No one's watching these places anymore. No, not They're, as much. I mean, it's just I think of what could be happening in these small towns. When you don't have anyone just looking over expenditures. Yeah, for sure. So, so anyway, I just sort of, that got my attention and we gave her kind of a, uh, a good job. And, and I do hope that small towns get a little bit more, get some watchdogs to help them out on that. So here's one um, of the things that I'm wondering with, uh, with the state auditor. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, the, the state auditor, I remember being probably the most active and effective since I was watching state government was Clifton Scott. Mm -hmm. now, he goes back a ways, mm -hmm. but you know, he was, he was one of those people who was very open. Uh, they did a lot of work under his tenure and, you know, a lot of stuff got done and mm -hmm. it's not saying we've had, you know, everything's been terrible since then, you know, kind of varying degrees of effectiveness and everything like that. But Cindy Bird has definitely been out there out in front. This is what I'm wondering. Does this raise her profile for higher office within the state or beyond that? Make her a bigger star mm -hmm. uh, within her own party? Or is it risk putting a target on her back? Because with the epic audit, the legislature had looked to strip her of some of her powers in reaction to that. And I'm sure that there are some people who are doing some moaning and groaning and grumbling about the health department audit. You know, it comes out a few days or maybe a day or two after the state of the state speech. You know, the big victory lap at the Capitol got kind of rained on a little bit when the state audit came out. Um, I, I gotta wonder. What's you know, I don't know. You know, your, your Cliff Scott example is pretty good because I remember him getting crossways with, he was a Democrat back when yep. Democrats held control like Republicans do now. Mm -hmm. And I think he called one of his fellow Democrats dumber in a bag of rocks, if I recall. Something I can't remember what it was. <laughs> sure someone will remember out there. But he stood up to his own party. Yes, he and, did. And, he, and it made him more popular because he was right in each of those cases. So I think if you are, if you're on the right side, if you can stand by your work, which, which her and her staff have shown, and, and mm -hmm. Epic came out after him pretty hard. Um, I think it stand up. I mean, I think it can, because she's going to get pushed back. 
you yeah, know, it's for just, sure. that's just the way it is. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's when people in power get caught doing something, sometimes the reaction isn't, isn't that way. We'll see uh, how that goes. The way it should be. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you know, the thing that happened locally, and we'll, I just wanted to bring attention to it for those who are, who are listening, but it's uh, the city council's, and I got to have to get through, it, the, the effort to move forward on a non-binding resolution that looks at making amends for the race massacre. And the, the council heard sort of a first proposal about how to do community engagement. Uh, and the idea is, and I'm a little fuzzy on this, but it's not promising reparations or uh, anything in the end, but it certainly brings up the process that could lead to recommendations along those lines. Mm-hmm. And and I think as a board, and I think you know, for myself, it's like I I bless that process because I think those kind of conversations have to continue. That that what you know, Greenwood has not been um, fully restored in the way and. And when you consider the the survivors and the descendants, what can be done to make that whole and the idea of restorative justice. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I do commend the the city council for at least starting down that road. That not letting, you know, we've had the the marker of the the century of the uh, race massacre. We just can't drop it. We have to keep going with it. So, um, yeah. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that or not, but. Um, reparations is a, yeah, reparations is a lightning rod term. Um, but I think what we need to do, and I think this is something that these folks are thinking about that want to move this forward, is defining what it looks like. What is, what are reparations? So you consider everything that was lost, you know, generational wealth from individual business owners, a lot of homes, uh, enterprises and stuff like that some came back some didn't some people just left Tulsa and never looked back um, a lot of it was uninsured insurers would not come forward to cover the expenses of people having their lives destroyed through no fault of their own so where I push back against the naysayers is the one thing you have to accept you cannot overlook you can't just say well we can we can just basically time out this type of thing just run out the clock and then eventually 100 years later or 200 years later and nothing's done and people will just quit and forget about it because the pain and the and the loss still lingers maybe not in many people's individual memories but definitely in how that area of town has fared since the race massacre so what's, you know, what would be something that would work to get it back up to what would be relative to its glory days from back in 1921 before the massacre? And I don't think the actual ideas to do that would be all that controversial. And I think the return on investment that you would get from it, depending on what sort of things that you, what sort of actions you take would help the whole city. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would hope people keep an open mind to that, that just don't block it out saying, well, I wasn't there when it happened, so I don't want anything coming out of my pocket. That's not the point. Right. And, the, and, and, it's, and the, this process is to bring in a lot of different voices, because if, if we can bring up one area of town, we all benefit. I mean, the whole idea yes. is this is to 
to bring restorative justice to to this uh, to the people in, who are directly affected then um but yeah it never goes away and so yeah. if we can make amends in some ways and reparations means so many things to everyone that we yeah, have yeah. to find some sort of framework to have that discussion and figure out what what do we need to do so think of um, it this way just on a, a comparative scale so after downtown life and business and everything started to change through urban renewal and you know white flight into the suburbs and everything like that and you had the hollowing out of downtowns including Tulsa there was a conscious decision made to turn that around and breathe new life into that part of the city. Now, what's inside the IDL, square mileage wise or whatever, is a fraction of what the entire city of Tulsa looks like. But the amount of money that they poured into it and the commitment they poured into it has benefited the entire city. There are people living there, there are new businesses there, there's new life there, more things to do, you know, Everybody has benefited from how well downtown Tulsa has improved over the last 15 to 20 years. There's no reason to think that if you had that sort of commitment to Greenwood as an act of restoration, that you couldn't also see a similar bounce, not just for Greenwood and for North Tulsa, but for the entire community. It's important that we focus on, you know, helping out Greenwood, mm -hmm. but in doing so, it helps everybody. Right. That's kind of what I hope that people will understand. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a hard turn here. You watch hard Yellowstone, turn. right? I have watched all four seasons of Yellowstone. I have not. I heard there was a bad uh, animal cruelty scene in the beginning and I don't know if I can get past it, but I'll try. We'll see. But the creator of that is creating a new TV show, new TV series called Tulsa King, starring Sylvester Stallone. Now we don't know, this just came out, it's a Jimmy Trammell story, but there were two things. That is a big, and, and just the name will bring the visibility to the city. No matter mm -hmm. if they film part of it, not part of it, it's kind of cool. A Tulsa background based uh, series. And another series on the uh, life of Bass Reeves. The yep. first black marshal west of Mississippi. And I'm embarrassed to say I never knew about him until I was out of college. I was like 23 years old at the African American Resource Center in North Tulsa when I came when I first heard about him. And I love that this, even if they have fictionalized stories about him, it's a wonderful story. I mean, he's mm -hmm. just I love that we can find and bring to light, you know, these people who shaped are, you know, shape this area. So yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. What do you think? I mean, I love that Tulsa is getting this attention. Oh, this is fun. Um, so for, I'm sure a lot of people understand what Yellowstone is. It's basically, it's, it's Dallas, <laughs> but set in Montana and it's much more murdery. Um, I wonder if there's going to be the equivalent of a train station for Tulsa that's <laughs> in Yellowstone and People who watch the show, they'll get that reference. Um, but um, yeah, Taylor Sheridan has done a, a really nice job in, in getting an audience for Yellowstone. Um, I love Montana anyway. 
Uh, I've been there a few times and have explored it some. It's a wonderful state. It's beautifully shot. If they can do that kind of work here, um, you know, Sylvester Stallone has been known to play some really interesting good characters. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they portray the city. We're yeah, going well, to be, I mean, and we're this is be a gangster show. I mean, the only thing we know, he said that it's a, his character went to prison for 25 years, took the fall for his crime bosses, comes mm. out, resettles in Tulsa, and, and gets a crew together to continue the criminal enterprise. So yeah. um, some people may not like that, but I, I don't know. I mean, just having Tulsa's name attached to something high profile will, I think, generate interest. But, um, you know, I, I, I just find that and, and it, this is after I mean we're sort of becoming known almost as this film being friendly to these productions I mean Killers of the Flower Moon still coming out Sterling yep. Hardo's Reservation Dogs and John Schwab still makes films here um we have what, Minari that came mm -hmm. out it was an award-winning foreign film of all things that was shot mm -hmm. in, in the area so you know it's, it's kind of interesting that maybe we're being discovered you know it's kind of cool well, so. it'll be interesting to see how accurately they portray well. different parts of the city. Like, there was a show that came out a while back that starred Holly Hunter, and it was supposed to be based in Oklahoma City. I was like, yeah. oh, come on, this is, I get what you're trying to do, but there's a lot of things here that just aren't quite right. So it'll be interesting well. to see how they do it. Uh, the Bass Reeves series, that's going to be fascinating. I would love to see who they cast in it. Oh, it's the guy from who was the, oh. uh, who played Martin Luther King in Selma. I forget. That's right. And he's that's fabulous. Right. So we've got a lot of profile names. Um, and to, to end this podcast on a light note, well, maybe not a light. I don't know. Are you watching the Olympics? We are. What are you watching? Like what, what sport? Well, I've been watching... Uh, not all of it. I've been more tuned to a lot of the skiing sports. Oh. Um, so that's been the skiing and snowboarding sports. I still hold out this dream that I'll get to go become a skier again. But it's fun watching that stuff. I, I have a hard time understanding how anyone maintains any control on the Super G uh, and the races like that. Oh, wow, that's crazy. 70 miles I... an hour, 80 miles an hour down the slopes. Okay. Yeah, that's a zero-sum kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, winter sports are just not my thing. I grew up in Oklahoma, mm. so, you know, we never had yeah. snow enough like that, but the bobsledding team, I didn't know how, like they have a calendar out and it started making the round. So all of a sudden I'm like, I guess they are ripped. I don't know what bobsledding they do, but these are the most in shape people I've ever seen. Like, and I think they did the calendar to get attention, like for me. So yeah. I actually watched bobsledding. I still have no idea what they do. They jump in the tube thingy. I guess they're steering. I, I don't know. I watched the whole thing. Apparently they pull like five G's sometimes with as fast as this thing goes. Plus they got to have that sprint in the beginning. So they need Maybe, to have a lot of power. They, I mean, their, their legs are like tree trunks. It's uh, incredible. Right? So I watched that just because of a calendar, which, you know, it's what they, it is. they don't skip leg day. <laughs> no, no, they do not. The, uh, but I, you know, and I figure skating, I sort of watched. I, I haven't watched it as much as I used to, but I've been, I was really bothered by the Russian story. Not that, oh, she's allowed to compete, but when she fell and we saw how the Russian coaches were yelling and how these girls, I mean, they're teenage girls. We're talking yeah. 15. And it just reminded me of 
the American female gymnasts and how we now know how they were mistreated. And, yeah. and I just, it just makes me think who's watching out for the young athletes is the IOC should take more control because I mean, obviously I'm looking at this going, no one's looking out for these young girls. Who's, I think, yeah, they're being, yeah, they're being used and yeah, not to put a damper on the Olympics or anything like that. But in a lot of ways, it seems like we're doing the Beijing Olympics because this is what we do. I mean, there's no fans there because of COVID. They're yeah. how strict they are in China. I'm not sure how many people are watching. There's not a lot of excitement over this. And that's a shame for the athletes because they train so hard, spend so much time, effort, money, blood, sweat, and tears to get to this level. And it's kind of like, yeah, we're just going to go through this and just get it over with. And maybe in two years or four years, it'll be better. That's really sad. Uh, yeah. And when you look at the experience of that Russian team, the female skaters, you know, the gal that was caught with the doping drug, but she gets escaped, but then she falls. So she doesn't meddle. And it's between these other two teammates. And one of them does these amazing things, but she gets second and she's mad and she throws a fit. And the person who won first doesn't feel like she can celebrate. It's just like, these girls are going to need therapy when I, this I know, is over. All I keep thinking, like, who's watching out for them? I mean, there's something to be said about, especially particularly for young athletes, like their mental health is just never, I mean, and we, we've seen it. We've seen it play out, like say, with the American women. So that, that saddens me, but I'm still going to watch men's bobsledding. So, you know, it's going to be. Sure. All right. Well, until next week, everybody, please write us. Tell us if there's something you want us to talk about. Um, send us letters to the editor. Pitch us some op-eds. Um, mm -hmm. Keep in touch with us. We're easy to find. So uh, I appreciate it. Any last words, Bob? Hey, just keep reading. Check out Sunday's paper, retailsworld.com. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Okay. See you later.